You are listening to The Lord is My Shepherd, Studies from Psalm 23, a sermon series delivered in November of 2008 at Hokessin Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled The Valley and is delivered by Rick Bino. Kindly inquired about my return to teaching. It's going very well, thank you. Although I've noticed um, something odd happens, is that I feel very old. Because somehow when I left teaching a few years ago and I would teach my sophomores, they were 15 years old. And then I leave for a while and I come back and my sophomores are still 15 years old. And yet somehow I am no longer young and spry like I used to be. I was teaching the same class of sophomores and we were uh, working through a piece of literature that challenged them to think about their priorities, to think about what was most important Uh, in their lives. And so I created this sort of deal or no deal kind of activity for them to participate in. And I offered them some sort of large amount of sort of material gain. But in order to get this material gain, they had to give up something. They had to give up some privilege or some some convenience or something in their lives. So for instance, I might have said, uh, I'll give you a million dollars, but you have to move to Finland and live there. So they had to decide, was it worth taking the million dollars if they had to move to Finland to get the million dollars? And so one of my scenarios was this. I offered them $10 million, but in order to get the $10 million, they needed to, not, they needed to give up text messaging, emailing, and cell phones. So I said, would you take the $10 million if you had to never text message, email, or use a cell phone again? And out of 70 sophomores... Let me tell you, guess how many took the deal? Zero. Not one 15-year-old at my school was willing to give up text messaging, emailing, and cell phones for $10 million, which is ironic considering some of us would pay $10 million to not have to mess with cell phones, emails, and tech messages the rest of our lives. And so, of course, curious as I was about this turn of events, which a little surprised me, I asked them about this decision, and they all declared, just as you might guess, that they couldn't possibly live without text messaging and cell phones and emailing. At which point, I played the old man. I said, oh yeah, really? Back when I was a kid, back in 1980, we didn't have any of these things. Matter of fact, we didn't know what a text message was, or an email was, or a cell phone was. We had none of these things. And we survived. We seemed to have done just fine. To which one of my lovely students looked at me and said, quote, yeah, Mr. Bino, but you grew up in a different time zone. (laughs) There's just really nowhere the lesson can go after that. You just sort of close the book and dismiss. Well, I, in fact, did not grow up in a different time zone than they did, but I certainly grew up in a different era than they did. Just this past week, my wife and my kids were cleaning out a dark corner of our attic, and they pulled out and discovered my old Atari 2600. Anybody remember these? One single joystick with a red button? The Atari 2600, well, of course, we took it down, we got out the games, plugged it in, still worked. It was a very, very fun trip down memory lane. I had forgotten how horrible the graphics are on these computers, but 
it was a fun time playing Mission uh, Command again. But a lot has changed since 1983, and I know what many of you will be saying. Many of you are saying, you ain't seen nothing if you're only comparing the changes since 1983. Because some of you can remember changes from 1963 or 1943 or even earlier. There's been a lot of change in our culture, in our worlds. Improved communication, improved safety, improved transportation, improved health. Things have changed for the better. Things have changed quickly. And yet, and yet, in spite of all these changes, in spite of all these improvements, in spite of all the technologies, we still need to hear, the Lord is my shepherd. It's somewhat humorously ironic that we still need to hear these words. It's a little ironic that we still resonate with these words, considering 99.9% .9 of us have never met a shepherd. Most of us have never been around a flock of sheep that weren't in a cage with a do not feed the sheep sign on it. And yet somehow this image of us having a shepherd resonates with our souls. It still resonates with our hearts in spite of all the technologies and our cell phones and our computers and our laptops. We still resonate with this simple rural image that we have a shepherd. And I think part of the reason that it remains so meaningful to us is simply this. There's something deep in our human souls that tells each of us that if I were not being led, that I would be lost. And so our souls continue to respond when we hear, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We hear those words from verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 23, and our hearts still respond. Poetically speaking, those first three verses are in the third person, which means it's kind of like the sheep are talking to each other about the shepherd. They're talking to the shepherd as a he. The Lord, that person, he is my shepherd. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. But there's a shift in focus in verse 4. No longer are the sheep talking about the shepherd, but talking to him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, talking to the shepherd, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The conversation becomes more personal and more intimate, more one-on-one -on -one between the sheep and their shepherd. And like the first part of this psalm, we continue to need to hear these words. We still, after all these years, and after all the improvements of our lives, we still need to hear these words, because we still find ourselves in the valley. None of the technologies and progresses and computers, none of these has figured out a way to keep us out of the valley. 
Being in the valley, of course, is nothing new. This is an ancient psalm from an ancient follower of God who found himself in the valley. And so when we hear this idea of there being a spiritual valley, we understand sort of innately what is, what is meant in the same way that we sort of innately understand the idea of the mountaintop experience, the, sort of the reverse of the valley. And most of us, if we could choose, we would choose the mountaintop. Those times where we're basking in the light, where the energy of God is upon us, all is bright in our world. We love the mountaintop. And the mountaintop experience is aptly named. Because in the Old Testament, multiple followers of God experienced God in a very unique way on a literal mountaintop. You remember Moses went up Mount Sinai. The rest of Israel had to stay outside the boundaries. They couldn't even touch it. There was fire and smoke and... and, and uh, and thunder and lightning and earthquakes. And Moses treks into the mountain, up the mountainside. And he, and he speaks with God, and God gives him the law on the mountaintop. David, of course, would have known this story of Moses on the mountaintop. He would have known the story of Elijah on the mountaintop, on Mount Carmel, where there's a challenge between Jehovah and Baal a false god, and, and the challenge was they were going to set up a, an altar with, with, with the sacrifice on top of it, and whatever followers could get the, their god to spontaneously bring down fire upon the altar would prove their god to be the true god. And so the Baal worshipers went first, and they danced, and they sang, and they prayed, and they cut themselves, and there was no fire. But then Elijah, after dousing the altar with water, just to help make his point, he prays to Jehovah, and this fire comes down from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, and the water. There's a great moment of victory. Elijah experiences God on the mountaintop. And many of us have had great experiences, spiritual experiences in our lives. We've had these mountaintop moments. And for the most part, if we could figure out a way to make it happen, we would just go from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. But there's one problem. To get from one mountaintop to the other, you have to go through the valley. Moses did. After this great experience on the mountaintop, he comes down the mountain. He has the, the tablets in hand, sort of the movie vision that you're used to seeing. He comes out down the mountain and he sees the people worshiping a golden calf, violating the very commandments that he's holding. He smashes the commandments, and he has to deal with all this sinfulness amongst the people. He quickly goes from the mountaintop into the valley. The very next chapter, after Elijah experiences this great moment on top of Mount Carmel, he comes off Mount Carmel, finds out that the evil queen Jezebel has put out a hit on his life, and he starts running. And he runs and runs and runs until he can't run anymore, and he falls down. And he prays to God these words. He says, Lord, I've had enough. I can't go on. From the mountain to the valley. Wouldn't it be great if the, spiritual technolo if the technology of our age could create some sort of spiritual transport? They could just sort of take us from one mountaintop to the, and drop us down on the next mountaintop. But we have no spiritual helicopter of any sort to help us skip the valleys. 
Moses went through them, Elijah went through them, David went through them, we go through them. We have nothing to help us skip the valleys, but we do have a shepherd who will walk through them with us. I'd like to tell you a little bit about ancient Near East shepherding. If you already know about ancient Near East shepherding, forgive me. This will be redundant. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, let me give you a little primer. During the winter, the shepherd would keep all the sheep in the, at the ranch. And as winter began to break, he and his sheep would start their way up mountainsides. Because as the ice and the snow melted, you would find the best and greenest meadows. And so they would follow sort of the snow line up the mountainsides, and then as, this, as winter came in again and the snow began to cover more of the mountain, they would work their way back around, back to the ranch. Spend the winter in the ranch, and the next spring they'd do the same thing, taking their sheep up and down the mountainsides. But they learned something quickly about sheep, and that is they don't go straight up mountains very well. So you kind of have to meander to get to these, to these meadows. And to get to these meadows, you have to sometimes go through the valleys. And so a shepherd would understand that the valley isn't, even though it's, it's sort of the opposite of a mountaintop, that a valley is the way to get to the mountaintop. It's part of the mountaintop experience. We appreciate and rejoice in the mountaintop, often because it's a result of us going through a valley. As I meditate on this passage, I began to think about this idea of there being the valley of the shadow of death and the fact that our lives are full of these peaks and these valleys. And I just felt compelled to, to note in my heart and to you that it's by God's grace that not every valley is the valley of the shadow of death. And we all go up and down through valleys. What graciousness it is that some of the valleys aren't that deep and aren't that dark. They might not be the mountaintop, but they're not the valley of darkness either. And so I think so often in our everyday lives, we experience God's grace just by the fact that the valley between the mountains is not all that deep. But of course, as this passage lets us understand, sometimes it is. The valley of the shadow of death is there. And you've been in it, or you will be in it, or you are in it. The valley of the shadow of death. And this valley presents dangers to us spiritually in the same way that the valley presented dangers to the sheep. Most notably, the, the, the valley was filled with wild animals, and in the valley they could hide in these crags and crevices and behind rocks. And so the shepherd would carry with him the rod. The rod was a medium-sized stick. It would have a a heavy end to it. It was sort of chiseled and, and carved and smoothed out by the shepherd. It would have a heavy end on it and a, and a thinner end that he would hold. And the, and the rod was primarily a, a device of protection. He used it for some other things, but it was primarily a device of protection. As in the passage James read this morning, when David was project, protecting, protecting his sheep from a lion, he would have used the rod, and he would have clubbed the lion with the rod. Interestingly, they could also throw the rod up to 100 feet with really high accuracy. It would clunk, knock out the enemy from afar. So they were highly skilled with the rod. And so in Psalm 23, when we hear, your rod comforts me, we are to understand that 
The shepherd protects us. The shepherd's looking out for us. The shepherd is keeping us from danger. He's fighting against the forces that are out to harm us. And so we can be comforted that our shepherd carries a rod. Along with the rod, the shepherd carries the staff. You're more familiar with this object, I think. If you've ever seen a nativity scene, you've probably seen shepherds with the staff. You don't usually see the rod, which is kind of odd. But anyway, you see the staff, and it has the crook on the end, right? And the crook is there not just for decoration, but it was functional for a shepherd because it was with the crook that he would rescue sheep that had fallen. A sheep falls too deep, gets too deep in the water, and the shepherd would reach out, and with the crook of his rod, he would go under the shoulders and neck of the sheep and pull the sheep out of danger. The sheep falls in a hole. He would pull the sheep out of the hole with the staff. And so the staff was a symbol of rescue. Rescuing us from pitfalls and dangers. Rescuing us when we find ourselves fallen. And so David says, when we walk through this deep shadow, we can fear no evil because the shepherd is with us. And he carries with him tools of care for us. A rod that protects and a staff that rescues. And this is needed encouragement because when we are in the shadow of the valley of, the, of death, it is truly a valley of darkness. One early saint, St. John of the Cross, wrote about his time in the valley and he entitled the work, The Dark Night of the Soul, which I think is an apt way of describing the valley of the shadow of death. It's not always clear what will usher us into the valley, Sickness or death, loss, divorce. These are all the kinds of things that happen that can usher us into the valley. There's less visible things that are no less dark in our hearts. Addictions, depression, anxiety, loneliness. These too can usher us into the valley of darkness. And while we're there, we, we often agree with Elijah. We say, Lord, I've had enough. I can't possibly, I can't possibly do this another day. I can't go any further. But just about that time, we feel a gentle tug of a loving shepherd's crook around our neck, lifting our head up, reminding us of the mountain that's ahead, the green pastures that are ahead, and prodding us on to keep going. Keep going. And I know many of you have felt that gentle nudging because you're here. You're here. Once again, you've made it through another week, another day, and here you are. And that brings our attention to an important small word in this verse. Though I walk through the valley. We are not led into the valley and then abandoned. We are not led into the valley only to find a dead end, but our shepherd leads us to the valley, which reminds us that we are not intended to live there, but to move through it to the next green pastures on the mountainside. After Moses had gone up and had this spiritual high, he comes down and has this spiritual valley, he goes back up onto the mountain, and it's at that point that Moses sees the glory of God pass by him. 
Elijah too, he's on the top mountaintop of Mount Carmel, comes down, says, I can't go one step further. And he's visited by an angel. The nudging of the shepherd says, keep moving on. Elijah goes up on a Mount Horeb, and it's there that he hears the whisper of God's voice. And he experiences God's presence. We are meant to travel through the valley. And I don't want those words to offer trite comfort for those of you who have been in a valley for a long time. Because these valleys, we know, can stretch for days and months, sometimes years. Sometimes we seem like we keep returning to the valley year after year. But I mean to encourage us by saying this, the best, the best is yet to come. Because there is a mountain ahead of us, unlike any other mountain that we've ever experienced. It's Mount Zion, the city of God, the hill of God. A mountaintop where we will reside with God. We will not go into the valley again. And we will, as Psalm 23 says later, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the shepherd, he lifts our heads. And he says, hold on. Hold on. Keep taking one step after one step after one step. Because the shepherd is with you. The shepherd rescues you. Your shepherd protects you. Your shepherd will never let go. Clouds brought rain and disaster came. Oh, my soul! Oh, my soul! When waters rose and hope had flown, oh, my soul! Oh, my soul! Oh, oh my soul! 